0: Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today, we're gonna be talking about an LA DWP change in tact toward a more renewable energy future, former LA County Sheriff Lee Baca heading to federal jail, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors deciding to replace Men's Central with a mental health facility, officials harassing journalists and activists at the US-Mexico border, and an unsurprising announcement in the 2020 Los Angeles City Council race. How's it going, Bushido?
1: It's going pretty well. It's been uh, already a a crazy week. Uh, We got 20 people throwing in on CD12. Yeah, which we're not going to be covering today super much. Uh, uh, We're going to be doing that, obviously, in the future. But, like, that race is going to be a real bellwether for 2020 with... uh, Former uh, L.A. City Councilman Frank Ferry throwing in there, uh, climate scientist Lorraine Lundquist, and immigration activist Carlos Amador. Uh, so we'll keep you up to date as that race progresses because, remember, that vote's coming up in June. And then we also have the LAUSD uh, Board for District 5 vote coming up in, what, three weeks here, four weeks? Yeah,
0: it's coming up real quick. And yeah, then, March 5th. The really fun thing with that CD12 race is that they get to do it all over again for 2020.
1: Yeah, they, they'll, they're only going to hold that seat for about a year and a half. So, yeah. We'll see how that goes. But I have a feeling whoever wins this race is going to keep it, it in 2020. Tends we'll, to go that way. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Uh, what I did want to talk about before we get into stuff, especially with the LADWP news, uh, the Sunrise Movement, uh, Los Angeles hub, went to Diane Feinstein's office on Monday uh, for a really interesting action. Uh, we met with one of her staffers. Uh, he was a little bit noncommittal, but we were able to like make some noise and get people um Excited about the Green New Deal. We also had a reporter from The New Yorker out there. So oh. we've got a front page New Yorker story hey. featuring quotes from two of our hub coordinators, uh, Ruby Dutcher and Natalie Rotstein. If you get the chance, check that one out. Share it around. We're building a lot of power there. So if you want to get involved in the Green New Deal, you want to. if you want to get involved with the Sunrise Movement, the LA Hub is super active and we could use all the people and all the support that we can get our hands on.
0: Absolutely. That's fantastic news. And uh, yeah, everybody should be definitely keeping an eye out for that. So unrelated news, uh, we are going to be shutting down some gas plants here in Los Angeles. On Monday, Mayor Eric Garcetti announced that the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power was going to be scrapping plans for rebuilding three of their natural gas power plants along the coast. The three plants in question are the Scattergood plant in El Segundo, just south of the Los Angeles International Airport, the Harbor plant, which is in Wilmington, right next to the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, and the Haynes plant, which is located inside of Long Beach. The city has already taken steps to nearly eliminate coal from its power budget, divesting from the Navajo plant over in Arizona three years ago, and announcing plans to stop buying power from Utah's Intermountain plant by 2025. The new move to scrap the gas plants marks a significant shift in LADWP policy And the announcement was welcomed warmly by activists who have been pushing for immediate action toward Los Angeles' long-term goal of a 100% renewable energy future.
1: Now, this also comes as LADWP is developing their strategic long-term plan. So Mm -hmm. that's going to set the stage for what kind of power we use and invest in uh, for the next 30 to 50 years. So. Uh, based on LADWP's own projections, for the same price of repowering these plants, we could go 100% renewable in the L.A. basin by 2030. These plants, just to let you know, wouldn't have even been repowered and online f- at full capacity until 2029 at a full cost of about $6 billion.
0: That's absolutely absurd. Uh,
1: it is. So uh, Eric Garcetti making a pretty you know, solid move here by not repowering these and leading LADWP to have to
0: invest in more renewables. Quote, It's the right thing to do for our health, it's the right thing to do for our Earth, it's the right thing to do for our economy, Garcetti said. And now is the time to start the beginning of the end of natural gas. So this is all coming in the context of a bill that was signed by Governor Jerry Brown back in 2018 that requires California to get 100% of its electricity from climate-friendly resources by 2045 up from a previous target of 50% renewable by 2030. Uh LADWP plan right now is calling for the Scattergood plant to actually be fully retired by 2024 and the Haines and Harbor plants by 2029. Food and Water Watch's Alex Nagy said that Garcetti is, quote, showing the rest of the country what a Green New Deal can mean for our communities, end quote. In a statement, Nagy continued, we are hopeful that this is a first step to swiftly transition Los Angeles off fossil fuels and move the city to 100% renewable energy by 2030. It's time to clean up our air, prioritize healthy communities and green jobs, and usher in a clean energy revolution.
1: And this is also coming on the heels of uh, Council President Herb Wesson showing that he's on board with a Green New Deal for Los mm-hmm. Angeles, which is being pushed by Councilman Bonin and Councilman Koretz. Uh They've both made appearances, or at least their staffs have, at the uh a Sunrise LA hub because they're really committed to moving us forward and uh, also wanting to get the press of showing themselves as progressive councilmen in this like sort of fight for renewable energy.
0: Absolutely. And there's also been endorsement at the state level for a Green New Deal, notably signing on to this resolution from a, a San Diego assembly member. Uh, Wendy Carrillo jumped in, but Miguel Santiago did not. So it's interesting to see how certain folks within the Los Angeles uh, community in, in terms of our representatives up in Sacramento are jumping on board. with the green new deal and others are potentially just late to the game hopefully or are not really realizing the absolute you know looming catastrophe that is uh, the global climate change.
1: And we're seeing that same split at the Senate level where Kamala Harris has thrown in with a Green New Deal, but Diane Feinstein is still, <laughs> still being a little bit wishy, wishy-washy and saying she's committed to the environment, but she's not fully prepared because she hasn't, quote, evaluated the plan yet. Okay, But we're seeing this pressure bubble up all across the state. And California wants to protect itself or kind of keep its image as a climate leader. So we're seeing a lot of sort of Old school politicians versus like newer, younger electeds uh, is where the schisms are happening. And Mm -hmm. we'll have to see how that plays out. I know Mitch McConnell wants to take the Green New Deal to the Senate for a vote because he wants to show the young upstarts on the left wing of the Democratic Party that nobody supports them. But I think he's going to be he's going to be getting a rude awakening for how much support this bill does have. I don't think it's going to make it through. Uh, the U.S. Senate on this vote, and that's the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, this is not going to be the slam dunk that McConnell wants. And even if he wins and, like, the the Green New Deal doesn't get the Senate support, I'm not quite sure what he's going to prove there other than providing a list of folks that we're going to primary <laughs> yeah, in 20, 2022, yeah. 2024. Uh, Mitch McConnell himself, he's going to be up for uh, re-election in 2020. I don't think he's giving himself a whole lot of... Um, I think he's given his opponents a lot of ammunition here. I think he's showing how reactionary and old school and out of touch he actually is. So we'll have to see how young voters get activated in this next election, especially around the Green New Deal and Medicare for All and these very like kind of progressive proposals that even a couple of years ago seemed out of reach and now are well within the Overton window.
0: Absolutely. And it's also going to be interesting to see what happens here at our executive level of uh, state governance with Newsom coming in. He's already marking a pretty dramatic departure from the, frankly, incremental approach that Governor Jerry Brown had taken throughout his tenure and embracing a a pretty radical set of housing uh, priorities, uh, which we'll go into next week because there's just too much going on right now.
1: Well, and also Jerry Brown was really big on trying to push this regional power grid, which would have made it impossible for California and for Los Angeles to go 100% renewable. That plan did not work for him. Uh, SB 100, Committing, loss, uh, committing California to 100% renewables by 2045 was a real surprise win. It really was. Well, and also he had threatened to veto it if he didn't get his regional power grid, and then he backed off of that. So he kind of had his hand forced by the fact that he was retiring and the political wins were against him. It seems like Gov- Governor Newsom still wants to ride that line of being like, Oh, we're still committed to renewable energy, but I'm still friendly with fossil fuels and separate Energy. Uh, that, with the bankruptcy of PG&E, means California's like energy and power future is really up in the air right now. And there's a really, really good uh, opportunity right now to force them to have to co- to have to uh, start. Uh, divorcing themselves from fossil fuels, from the extraction industry, which, by the way, is still a huge source of money and power here in California. I don't mean power in that power generation. I mean political power. Yes. You know, you don't have to go that far up the coast to see offshore oil derricks. You don't um, have to
0: go outside of the city of Los Angeles to see inland oil derricks. I mean, Yeah, a
1: lot of them are shut down right now. Um, that, <laughs> that urban yeah. oil field out by uh, Crenshaw from, and yeah, uh, Baldwin that, Hills, yep. not fully operational, but mm-hmm. people keep trying to bring it back online. Making it much harder, and a lot of people don't want to see that come back. Uh, One thing that Mike Bonham was talking about when he visited the uh, last Sunrise Hub meeting was that he wants to see that oil field shut down permanently. So there's a lot of electeds who are trying to move to the left. They're catching institutional um
0: or they there there's some a lot of inertia there yeah they're they're finding
1: against. some opposition yeah. in the the uh kind of more establishment and older parts of the the political machine here but those parts of the, of the political machine are also aging out like We just don't have that many boomers that we can keep electing because like they're getting older and older. The time for millennial Congress people not being the exception to the rule is coming much more quickly. And after what we've seen with like Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ro Khanna, uh, we have a real critical mass that we're building at a national level. And that's going to begin trickling down. And California being like, you know, something Kendall likes to say is, hi, I'm from California. I'm visiting from the future is really true. (laughs) (laughs) So the decisions that we're making in the next couple of election cycles are going to set the stage here in California for what will be the national stage in the next couple of election cycles in 2022 and 2024. Uh, 2020 is going to be like really big. and I keep hammering this home because every incremental win we get from Garcetti, from LADWP, from Gavin Newsom – we can capitalize on at a national level. So these might seem like insignificant bureaucratic and technocratic victories. They matter a lot.
0: Absolutely. They set that they set that stage for all of the change that we're going to be pushing for in the next election cycle. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty
1: excited and hyped on this and not just because I, really, of the work, I couldn't tell. Yeah. And not just because <laughs> of the work I've been doing with Sunrise Movement, but like the fact that people are actually trying to avert a climate apocalypse uh, is making me really, really happy. Uh, the other thing that I get super happy about is when cops go to jail. (laughs) And so our next story is going to make me doubly happy.
0: Yes, it will. Uh, So on Monday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Los Angeles denied the appeal of former Los Angeles County Sheriff Lee Baca. He was convicted in 2017 of obstructing justice and lying to federal authorities during investigations into rampant prisoner abuse in the Los Angeles County jail system.
1: This was a case that also ensnared a couple of his top deputies. Yes, it uh, did. Uh, Paul Tanaka, Mm -hmm. uh, who also belonged to one of those white supremacist gangs we talk about in the uh, LA County Sheriff's Department.
0: Also, why you never see the sheriff's deputies running around in shorts.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. You got to hide those tattoos. It's very like kind of the Yakuza style where like you can wear a vest and you can wear a business shoe and it's not going to show your like mafia affiliations. Uh, Unfortunately, federal authorities do tend to strip you down when they're searching you. (laughs) Um, So we've seen a lot of of officers in the sheriff's department and high ranking officers have to cop to these federal charges, uh, get caught up in this federal sting. Um, It so far is Clearing out the top ranks, but Villanueva has made some weird moves to try and protect deputies. Not something we're talking about here, but we're seeing a real management shift between McDonald, Villanueva, and the Bach administration, um, and it's it's kind of not making the sheriff's department look all that great, which I'm okay with. Uh, But let's get back to to Baca's specific charges (laughs) before I go too far afield.
0: Yeah, so uh, Baca is, is 76 years old. He's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and he's facing three years in a federal prison for his crimes. In a statement responding to the denied appeal, U.S. Attorney Nick Hanna said, Quote, instead of cooperating with a federal investigation that ultimately was concerned about improving conditions in the county jails, Mr. Baca chose to obstruct and then lie to federal authorities. End quote. Hannah also said that the ruling, quote, confirms the principle that no one is above the law.
1: And for those of you that might not remember the specifics, uh, this centered around a federal informant who was in uh, the the uh, prison system here in Los Angeles.
0: call was with a contraband cell phone.
1: Yeah, which was provided to him by the feds. <laughs> by the feds, yes. Then that led to sheriff's deputies and sheriffs like uh, high-ranking officers trying to hide him from federal authorities within their own prison yeah, system. They were playing
0: a shell game with this prisoner trying to keep him away. Oh, Oh, it was nuts.
1: Yeah, there were forged documents. Uh, There were like, oh, he was released. He was transferred. It was this whole ridiculous game of one set of cops trying to hide their bad behavior from another set of cops. Uh, It resulted in multiple convictions. Uh, Lee Baca, remember, he came over from New York to take over the uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Yeah, he was one of the most storied uh, cops in America as far as, like, career and prestige placements go. So for him to end his career with a federal obstruction of justice charge and actual literal jail time in a federal penitentiary is a huge win for justice, even if I'm cheering on one set of cops versus another set of cops, which feels kind of weird. Um, but but you know,
0: Do you have that Mueller fever?
1: You know, I don't. I, I still don't. Um, I just— I've seen the, I've seen the Krasenstein's,
0: uh, oh, no, you know, No, Chippendale, book. Chippendale Muller.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't, it that doesn't get me excited. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> at the same time though, we should be happy that there's a level of accountability happy? here.
0: No, yeah, oh, no, that's hugely important.
1: Yeah. And there's also, you know, Los Angeles and Southern California have had consent decrees, have had federal investigations, have had, you know, decades worth of the federal government and the Department of Justice looking in the way that we do things. Now those were the Department of Justice primarily under presidents that weren't completely terrible and trying to undo the rule of law for their own part. Yeah. So we're kind of lucky that these prosecutions started under the Obama administration because I can't see the Jeff Sessions and now Matt Whitaker Justice Departments going after these cops with the same amount of zeal. Um, but I'll take the wins where I can get them and I'll also take the wins where like, it's not okay to assault Uh, prisoners, to assault people, visiting prisoners, to uh, engage in this kind of behavior and then try and hide it from the feds. Because that's where all of this started was investigating claims of excessive use of force in the sheriff's department jails, uh, in the jails here in L.A. County, and then Sheriff Baca and uh, under Sheriff Tanaka trying to protect their underlings from federal scrutiny, uh, which is just kind of weird that like our prison system here in L.A. County is literally being run by a criminal conspiracy. There's a yeah. lot of levels of really yeah. stupid stuff, and when you look at who's going to jail and who's spending time in prisons here, it's not folks who look like Lee Baca who have huge pension funds and millions of dollars to their name from a lifetime of being you know, state-sponsored thugs. So there's a little bit of poetic justice here. I'm pretty happy to be seeing it. Um, at the same time, we've got a lot of changes that we need to make in our jail system. But our County Board of Supervisors seems to be moving in a kind of better direction this week um, after trying to spend billions of dollars opening new jails and after seeing uh, the – you know, here in L.A. – sorry, I'm going to go a little bit before we we hop into the next story. Here in L.A., every single arrest demographic is going down except for arrests of the unhoused. Those are up 30 percent year over year. When we look at the prisons that we're building, when we look at the jails that we're building and the, the billions of dollars we're spending there, we're not building those to lock up bankers. Uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, we're not building them to lock up ICE agents, which is unfortunate. Uh, but it's good to see the the county board has made some decisions about how they're going to be spending this money. So let's talk about the fairly dramatic shift in policy that happened this week.
0: Yeah, so on Tuesday this week, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted 3-2 to two to tear down Men's Central Jail in the heart of downtown and replace it with a mental health facility. Yeah, so— Like, I
1: can't tell you just to—sorry to interrupt, no, no, but no. like— when we were doing occupy Ice LA, that was the next point, yeah, yeah, we were we were sitting in front of the Metro Detention Center, one of the largest jails in the county, and you were, you know, line of sight to Twin Towers. You could see, you know, just where from where we were camped out on the the patch of sidewalk in front of this federal facility, there were probably 30,000 prisoners within those two facilities that we could see, which are both, you know, blocks away from L.A. City Hall. Like the mass incarceral state exists here in a way in downtown Los Angeles that most other cities don't have. Um, When I was growing up in Arizona, we had the Florence uh, uh, Correctional Facility, which was, you know, dozens of miles outside of Phoenix. You had to drive for a while to see that. L.A. is a different kind of mass-incarceral state and one that's really hidden. If you went and just went to, like, Grand Central Market and asked somebody, like, hey, where's a gigantic prison with, like, 10,000 prisoners, they wouldn't point a few blocks east to Men's, you know, yeah, Men's yeah. Central Jail, the Twin Towers. Um, and Men's, like, the, the Twin Towers already has a, uh, uh, a hospital ward there mm-hmm. that is the... Uh, largest mental health care facility in the states. Uh, something that Lee Baca, to his credit, did talk about how dysfunctional that was, and so it's really good to see like Mark Ridley Thomas, yeah. scandal-plagued, <laughs> trying to take over Herb's Herb Wesson's seat in the city council. Mark Ridley Thomas opting to tear down this prison. Um, that's a pretty big change of pace.
0: It really is. So this new facility is going to, is has been dubbed the quote mental health treatment center. Uh, very original naming there. And it's going to be overseen by the Department of Health Services rather than the Sheriff's Department, who currently oversee the existing jail. This change represents a growing shift in the county's approach to dealing with the changing prison population. According to the LA Times, quote, inmates who are medically or mentally ill now make up an estimated 70% of people held in the county jail system.
1: Which quote. is insane. It really is. Like you don't get well in a cell.
0: No, and don't get well. People, people are literally using the police as mental health outreach workers.
1: Well, and because you know, a lot of it is we also don't have the infrastructure here to deal with mental health in a good way. You know, thanks, Reagan. Well, and even beyond him, you know, because here's the thing, I will say, while Reagan is the one who signed the bill as governor that made it impossible to, well, not made it impossible, made it harder to involuntarily commit people because like a lot of the asylums back in the 60s and 68 when this bill went through, they were crimes against humanity. Yes, they were. So there were a lot of people coming out of the the 1960s and the anti-Freudian movement and saying, hey, this kind of psychotherapy that attempts to treat everyone as just a bundle of symptoms that can be treated clinically, probably not the way to go. It was really progressive who pushed this through. Um, the thought being that we would then switch to community mental health care facilities. So you would have like live-in facilities and community facilities with doctors on call to treat people and to help schizophrenics. That didn't happen. Yeah. They just got pushed out onto the street and then basically put in a position where if you're unwell and unable to care for yourself, you will go into, you'll go into a hospital facility. Then you get like well enough to care for yourself. And then you get the,
0: put back out on the street. again,
1: And then you end up in jail. And then the the state ends up paying three times as much to care for you as we could if you were in like an outpatient or some sort of a more caring and empathetic thing. But this was decades worth of policy failures that have led us here. So as much as I like blaming Ronald Reagan for everything, he doesn't <laughs> completely own that.
0: No, one. I mean, but he, he does have to own up for the fact that we didn't make any of those steps after shutting down all of the mental health institutes. Yeah, right? So yeah. that that does fall on his shoulders. Yeah, but very much so. That being said, uh, Supervisor Janice Hahn, uh, who co-authored the motion with, again, Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas, remarked on the common sense rationale behind the change. Quote, Jailers armed with tasers and pepper spray are inherently detrimental to creating the safe environment necessary for mental health care. Thank you, Janice Hahn, for stating what should have been so abundantly obvious to everybody—that like shouldn't how, be a revolutionary. How? Statement. How? how uh, but it had to be said by somebody in this position of power because it is something that is simply not taken for granted at that level at yeah. this point so no
1: and, and this is also giving me some hope that like because the the county board of supervisors is even more dysfunctional than our city hall oh, yeah. like we have like you know, five of
0: them to control even more population than exactly the
1: city. no it's it's the 10th largest state in the nation has an executive legislative body that's made up of five people the five little kings <laughs> they have been the most reactionary conservative force in this county since time immemorial like just to let you know the number of of members of the board of county supervisors has not gone up since 1913, 1913. And it's been more than a century where five (laughs) people have controlled the entire county and they have always been reactionary, developer friendly, police friendly. They're now beginning to see the pressure that the community is, is putting on them. They're now beginning to acquiesce to that to an extent. And these are, you know, we're still going to be building like a prison hospital like this isn't going to be some groundbreaking brand new treatment facility. It's not going to be the small network of community health centers that we need to actually help people and bring people into mental health care, but it's a step in the right direction where we no longer see somebody on the street who's in the throes of mental and emotional disturbance and have LAPD pick them up, send them to Men's Central Jail, uh, treat them as though they're just sort of a, a an unruly animal where they're sedated, where they're put into a system that doesn't treat them as human. Like, we're beginning to move away from that but it's still little baby steps but this is billions of dollars we're talking about here and also I want to say before we we move on the the sheriff's department has a budget that's almost four billion dollars a year because most of their officers are working in the jails. The fewer jails that we're building, that means the fewer cops that we need. That means that we can start cutting back on those budgets and diverting that money to something useful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's worth noting that supervisors Hilda Solis and Sheila Kuehl were the two who opposed the move in that three two vote. Uh, citing concerns over the quality of care for people suffering from mental illness. Activists were in attendance for the hearing, arguing against the construction of any new jail facilities, citing concerns that any new mental health facilities would turn into a jail by another name. Quote, in the end, they have just approved a contract to create a mental health jail, a jail with a bow on it. Uh, that was from uh, UNESCO Hernandez of Just Leadership USA. At the same meeting, the supervisors voted to uh, kill the conversion project that had been proposed to convert the Mira Loma detention facility out in Lancaster into a women's jail. Uh, at the in in the again the same hearing, they also passed a motion to explore the possibility of building affordable housing on the site instead.
1: Which is a really good one because with Mira Loma, that was a sensitive issue because shipping people far away from their family and their community it, makes it, it more likely yeah. that they'll reoffend, that they'll get rearrested. Uh, the, the recidivism rate is really high. And this is something that California has struggled with for a while. We send uh, inmates as far away as Alabama. We send a oh. lot of them to Arizona. Arizona has really got a lot of private prisons that they want to keep full, but it makes it much harder for you to get back into society. You know, uh, there's a guy I follow on Twitter that you should definitely check out. His name is The Homie Joshua. I forget exactly what his Twitter is. <laughs> but check him out. He He's uh, somebody who works with incarcerated youth. And he was talking about how in Norway, your sentence isn't determined by the severity of your crime. It's determined by your aptitude for release so like even if you get a 20 year sentence which is the maximum you can be sentenced to in uh, under Norwegian law mm-hmm. you have reviews every three years to see how you're doing it's not like here in the states where you get 50 years and then they don't come and check in on you for 25 years every year every two years every three years they're seeing are you okay to be released under supervision are you okay to be released into the community to begin rebuilding your life and re-establishing yourself and that's something we don't do here you know Again, to flashback to Occupy Ice, there were dozens of people who got out of Twin Towers. They're given like 17 bucks and told GTFO, best of luck to you. And they would show up at camp being like, yo, I need some food and I need a phone so I can figure out how to get home. That's not a support network and it's very easy to understand how somebody who maybe got carted in from like one of the unincorporated parts of the valley uh, far out there and has no way to get back home, has no like established network that will be able to get them back to a safe place. That person ends up on Skid Row just cycling through the system again and again and again and again. We're paying the cops that are arresting that guy 80 grand a year. We can probably pay them less and afford to give that guy a place to live, a place to stay, some job prospects. There's just, before I start reformatting no, the entire criminal justice system. Th- so it's I've th- got a lot of hope that like these are the baby steps we need towards the actual kind of abolition we're aiming for.
0: Absolutely. And even from even if like you're talking about an intermediate step before prison abolition, you can look at the fact that it costs upwards of $75,000 per prisoner to house people in jails here in California. Yep. You can spend so much less To do that, if you take that incremental approach of checking back in on people on a regular basis and determining, oh, hey, maybe we don't need to be spending as much money on providing such a strict, uh, fully regimented set of facilities, maybe we can start putting them into a a supervised release type of a situation that inevitably is going to cost so much less than that 75 grand a year. So even fiscal conservatives should be able to get behind this this kind of an idea of absolutely uh, good progressive reform of a system that is fundamentally oppressive and broken and needs to go. But I mean, it's going to take a long time before we get away from a retributive uh, criminal justice system here in this country.
1: Well, and it's something, you know, you and I are familiar with. Obviously, USC hadn't like shot its tuition up as high as it did when (laughs) when you and I were there. It still wasn't cheap. But keep in mind that a semester or sorry, not a semester, a year at USC, $50,000, one of the top ten colleges in America will cost you fifty thousand dollars a year. Keeping that same person in Men's Central Jail or one of the other facilities out in the valley, seventy-two grand a year. Like we've built <laughs> <It's> dozens like- <laughs> of jails. We've only built like two extra colleges here in California uh, in the past thirty years. It's it's the numbers are mind-boggling.
0: As a side note, that fifty grand includes like room and board and your damn tuition for classes. Like, come on. But not books. Not books. <laughs> Uh go check out the USC bookstore folks. It's super fun. Oh my god. Super fun. Pay <laughs> tons of money for like photocopied stuff. It's so, always a good time. Yeah, it's
1: <laughs> Man, it, well and we were there before like it was really easy to steal books through PDF <laughs> form. Like it was a real that. pain in the butt. Like if you want it yeah, no, I'm not getting into that. My the, the number of times I've stood at the bookstore with an arm breaking <laughs> level of books and thought, okay, at the end of the semester I can sell these back. No, you know,
0: no. literally
1: like made mm-hmm. two car payments just to buy my books <laughs> for the semester. Go back to sell them back at the end of the year, and they're like, oh, here's 80 bucks. And you're yeah, like, all right.
0: Yeah. Cool, 9 here I come. I do remember finding a way of uh, using half.com to go and get, like, the international version of one of my textbooks for, like, 15 bucks instead of, like, the 120 um, and it was fine. It was just a paperback version yeah. instead of a hardcover. So it worked. Uh, the things you do when you're in college. Yeah. Good times. So
1: uh, one of the things we mentioned a couple of times during this uh, breakdown on jails is Occupy Ice LA, which, yeah. you know, for those of us, for those of you who have been turning in for a while, that was a big thing that Ground Game did uh, and that Ice out of LA and a whole bunch of other coalition partners did. Since then, things on the border have developed. We've had multiple migrant caravans, which, to segue for a sec, they're not. A one-off event. These no. migrant caravans have been happening for decades. They're organized by people in the global south who need to get out, who need to provide options for themselves, for their community members. They came, they've came. they kind of hit the national stage because Trump and the GOP like fear-mongering. Stephen Miller understands that this can be a sort of pageant that he can exploit for money and hatred and all of that other BS. In the interim, Ground Game, Power, many of our coalition partners uh, left in L.A. I want to give them a shout out because they've been doing great work. Um, I've been going down to the border to do relief work uh, and also reporting on what's been happening down there. Well, it seems like the federal government in the U.S. and the federal government in Mexico are not really happy with the fact that people are talking to migrants, that people are shedding light on their plight. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on with journalists at the border.
0: So in news related to uh, journalists at the border, Ryan Devereaux from The Intercept has been reporting on journalists who have been covering the humanitarian crisis at the border, who have been in turn targeted by coordinated harassment by both U.S. Border Patrol agents and Mexican police on both sides of the border. Just after Christmas, four international photojournalists had their passports and credentials photographed by Mexican police officers near the border wall in Tijuana. Uh, Being questioned by the Mexican police is not an unusual event for journalists, but Having their credentials photographed was quite a surprise to these photojournalists.
1: There was also the uh, executives from El Otolado, uh to the other side, which is a relief organization, oh, yeah. uh, where they were deported from Mexico. One of them apparently while traveling with his family on In business unrelated. Yeah, was yeah he wasn't even going down there. Yeah, he was just going down there to vacation. And the Mexican authorities— Detained
0: him for nine hours. Yeah,
1: it's a really terrible, scary story. But so this is happening to activists and journalists.
0: Yes, it, uh, basically anybody that is seen as a rabble rouser. Uh, So the over over the following weeks after having their credentials photographed by the Mexican police, those same journalists were pulled into secondary screenings by U.S. and foreign officials while attempting to cross borders in multiple countries, not just the U.S.-Mexico border. One of those photojournalists was even barred from reentering Mexico and later uh, and during later questioning, a U.S. official indicated that they were aware of the encounter that the photojournalists had had with the Mexican police near that Tijuana border wall. Uh, in another case uh, from that uh, same group of four, uh, one of those photojournalists was taken into a private room at a U.S. port of entry, shown a book full of images of border based activists and asked who he knew. Pick out the people that you know from this lineup. Uh, Two of our ground game journalists, Ryan Mina and John Motter, have both been flagged for secondary screenings on their way back from Tijuana and have been confronted with similar rounds of questioning by U.S. Border Patrol. Uh, Everybody should go check out Ryan's article on NOC to read about the evictions that have been faced by migrants waiting on the border for their chance to apply for asylum in the U.S. And it's one real quick thing. It's worth noting that Ryan's name is R-Y-A-N-N-E. Yes, Ryan. Yes, Ryan.
1: Uh, But she also uh, came on the podcast and talked about her experiences in Mexico. And we actually break down what it was like to be pulled for secondary inspection. So if you're interested in hearing her uh, first-person account of that, uh, you can go back, hop in the way, way back machine about a archives. month or two. Uh, yeah, on the SoundCloud archive. But it, it's really interesting. It's also, one thing I want to point out before we move on, Ryan's a student
0: journalist. Yes, she is.
1: She is a small fish in this pond, and yet she is being specifically targeted by federal authorities. And this isn't the first time it happened. It happened at Occupy ICE also. The federal authorities are scared to death of anyone poking around down there to the point where they will harass people who are literally juniors in college.
0: Yeah, this stuff has been really ramping up in recent months. So uh, back in early January, a second group of photojournalists encountered the same kind of a situation with the Mexican police photographing their passports. When questioned as to why the police were taking those photographs, the response that they got was, it was quote for the Americans. Whew. Yeah, at wow. least, <laughs> yeah, at least one of these photojournalists was later banned from re-entering Mexico after coming back to the U S in recent months, the U S and Mexican law enforcement have been ramping up their efforts to target legal service providers, humanitarian groups, and journalists on the border. It appears to be a coordinated effort.
1: That doesn't surprise me from the Americans. <laughs> no. it, it a little bit surprises me from Mexico, but I know that the Mexican authorities um, and it, especially the local authorities in Tijuana are not super happy to have the migrant caravans around and they yeah. n- aren't super happy to have this kind of international attention on them. Uh, at the same time, it's Really scary and weird when you have quote democracies that are attacking the fourth estate
0: Yes, it absolutely is Hugh Handyside a senior staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union's National Security Project told The Intercept who was doing the reporting on this that quote the government Can't use the border to prevent journalists from gathering information, especially on issues. It would rather not report would rather they not report on if Customs and Border Patrol is interfering with or retaliating against journalists, that raises serious constitutional questions and bears further investigation. End quote. Senator Ron Wyden's office has confirmed that such an investigation is indeed underway. Quote, these are extremely disturbing reports, Wyden said in a statement to The Intercept. Uh. Quote, it would be an outrageous abuse of power for the Trump administration and Customs and Border Patrol to target people for searches based on their political beliefs or because they are journalists. CBP needs to explain exactly what happened in these cases and whether this was an aberration or a coordinated effort to punish political opponents.
1: I'm going to go with coordinated effort. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, well, because these are huge bureaucracies. Not all the moving parts um, know what the other moving parts are doing. You know, like there's... I I hate the term deep state uh, because it's dumb, but it actually describes something that exists, (laughs) not in the weird conspiratorial bit, but there are managers and like mid-level employees at all of these uh, federal agencies and law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies that stick around administration to administration to administration. They're not political appointees. Um, They're career people who are like mid-level stuff. They have their own agendas. They have stuff that they're trying to do in their own way they're trying to enforce law. So there is in a sense like this deep state of people who are trying to enforce their version of American law without really being on the same page as other people. So we have this weird schizophrenic sense of what's going on. And we're even seeing that play out on a level of like military intervention, because we have the army at the US border, which Donald Trump is, has sent down there. But then we also have the National Guard who are controlled by various governors. So Gavin Newsom recently decided he was pulling back some of uh, California's National Guard, uh, but not completely. It's a little bit of a, a, a weird situation down
0: there. It's, it's kind of a one third does this, one third does that, and one third does that kind of a situation. So. In his State of the State Address on Tuesday, Governor Gavin Newsom announced plans to pull back nearly all of the 360 California National Guard troops that were ordered to the border under Jerry Brown's tenure. Quote, the border emergency is a manufactured crisis and California will not be part of this political theater, Newsom stated in the address. But Newsom is not the first governor to make this move, which is sure to anger the Trump administration. Earlier in February, New Mexico Governor Michelle uh, Lujan Grisham ordered the majority of her state's National Guard troops to withdraw from the border as well. It's worth noting that each of the 50 states, three territories in the District of Columbia all maintain their own National Guard units. Typically, they fall under the control of the governor uh, and they're normally called upon to respond to emergencies and natural disasters. But things can get very complicated and we're not going to really go into the details there. In a letter last April announcing the deployment of the National Guard troops to the border, uh, former Governor Jerry Brown stated that, quote, this will not be a mission to build a new wall. It will not be a mission to round up women and children or detain people escaping violence and seeking a better life. And the California National Guard will not be enforcing federal immigration laws. Uh, The National Guard has been deployed to the border by every president since Ronald Reagan for limited temporary missions. (sighs) Yep. Uh, they all do it. Uh, it's all so it's also broken. Yeah. so No the,
1: borders, no nations, no, <laughs> nas- no mass deportations.
0: Yes. Uh, the 360 troops that were down there uh, are going to be retasked to handle what Newsom considers to be the actual true threats to our state. Uh, 110 of those troops are going to be deployed to support Cal Fire's wildfire prevention and suppression efforts. Um, at least 150 of them are going to be sent to expand the California National Guard's statewide counterdrug task force, which is an interesting uh construct there, assuming, of course, that the Trump administration agrees to foot the bill for that expansion. Um, Seems unlikely. Uh, And another 100 troops are going to be who are are, part of the intelligence operations targeting drug cartels. Some of these troops are, quote, specially trained counter-narcotic screeners. Uh, they're going to be deployed to ports of entry both at the border and elsewhere, presumably places like the Port of Los Angeles, which happens to be one of the busiest ports of entry in the world and is presumably a prime target for smuggling operations.
1: Well, and it's one of these things we don't talk about enough where our National Guard has shifted in the mission creep from being like the folks who show up when your town is being flooded and sandbag it. So it doesn't like the levees don't burst to literally being, uh, army soldiers who are operating with authority on American soil, like the guys that are the intelligence operations, they're using NSA data, they're using DOD data, they're able to look at all sorts of crazy microwave and satellite intelligence gathering apparatuses and basically all of the stuff that the army could do, these National Guard troops are doing. And a lot of them, in fact, are trained by the army and then after they've put in their enlistment for a couple of years or after they've finished their tour, they're like, you know what? I still want to be a soldier, just not all the time. So I do the weekend warrior thing. Yeah, Yeah, but they still go to war. Like when we went to Iraq, we just would send battalions of guys uh, to go fight wars. And it's like, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a sandwich artist at Subway, but now I'm a National Guardsman. It's like, maybe you shouldn't have a tank, sir. (laughs) Um, But we don't think that far ahead. But this is one of these things where like – Newsom is playing a nice game here where he's making it sound very innocuous, like the counter-drug task force. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that means they're going to be like flying helicopters over Humboldt and looking for illegal marijuana grows and other mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like this is basically just law enforcement, uh, but they're wearing a different set of camo. Uh, and it's also it's it's more of this this military mission creep that we've got going on. Uh, so as nice as it is to find out that these troops will not be at the border – Participating in this like absolutely atrocious, uh, stupid um, display of military power, it's not a whole lot better. Like, there's not much to be comforted by if you actually know what the words mean. Um, you know,
0: it's a slight improvement over a human atrocity, but it's, you know, Still not good, folks.
1: Well, and it's it's weird because here in America, we have this thing where our executives, um, like in the in the political sense, like our executive officers and the president, the governor and stuff, are also military commanders. Uh, and it's hmm. something that most other democracies don't have going on. But here in the US, we've kind of married the two of them where you get elected to office and suddenly you get to control men with guns. So, uh, fun, fun fact before I, I move on, <laughs> oh, did you know that technically- Officers in the US military answer to the president and enlisted people in the US military answer to Congress. So, if there was ever like a civil war, technically Congress controls like the sergeants and below, and the president controls the lieutenants and above. So, it's a real like management labor fight. Weird, right? (laughs) No, but that's literally how it breaks down. Like, there's even some like
0: absolutely bizarre just
1: yeah, it's it's a weird thing to think about. It's also something kind of like You don't consider that when you think of the structure of the military. We see it as, like, one big blob. But remember, the military is also a political institution. You know, this is all super uh, dirty and, like, still being negotiated and worked out. And, like, none of these plans were thought out. Like, Stephen Miller and the rest of his, like, hate-filled ilk came into office with a lot of big plans about how to make America white again. And they didn't realize that most of the federal government thinks that's a terrible idea and isn't designed to do that. So a lot of the dysfunctions we're seeing in like the executive structure and the military structure comes from the fact that we have people trying to shoehorn in plans that our political institutions aren't designed to do. Yep. Yeah, pretty fun. It's a mess. But uh, before we move on to the next one, uh, if you do want to get involved with relief at the border, because like literally there are thousands of people down there and they need help. Uh, We are constantly looking for people who want to volunteer if you want to just cook rice and beans for a couple hundred people we need you if you have clothes to donate we need you if you have medic training if you're bilingual if you have any legal knowledge whatsoever if you're a lawyer or a legal aid we need your help. This is a climate crisis. It is literally 90 miles south of the border, and there are thousands of people that really, really, really could use your help. So please hit us up at Ground Game LA. Hit us up at knock.la. Find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. But seriously, we need to – we roll down there pretty much every weekend. We always need volunteers. You can help. You can make a tangible contribution, and uh, there will be fewer National Guards troops down there. So, like, yeah. if your ex is in the National Guard, less likely you'll run into them when you go to the border. <laughs>
0: That's a nice little silver lining. There. Yeah,
1: I was trying to figure out a way out, and I was like, "Let's do that." <laughs> uh, but uh, so for our last story, uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned at the top, CD12 is like the big fight. Uh, yes. LAUSD Board Five is like the smaller fight. Like that's the that's the uh, what do you call it? The there's the main event, and yeah, then there's yeah, what do you call the the, the fight? warm
0: up fights? Yeah,
1: there's something the undercard. There yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah, LAUSD Board Five is the the undercard. Cle- the main event is CD12 for this year. <laughs> Uh but uh we have every even district in the city council in Los Angeles is coming up for a vote in twenty twenty. So C D fourteen, which is currently held by our favorite corrupt uh
0: alleged just, allegedly Allegedly I, sure,
1: up. he's allegedly <laughs> corrupt. Uh, he allegedly had a dog sniffing. No, no, for no. USB there's truck. no.
0: There's no allegations about the FBI having a USB sniffer dog. Do not besmirch <laughs> the, the dog. No that thing. happened. No, that that dog. I, I mean, it, it's kind of cool. Like that's that's one of the only working dog jobs for the FBI that I'm down with. But
1: but allegedly super corrupt councilman correct. Jose Weizar. Yes, that is a correct uh, He is termed out in 2020. Uh, his plans to hand his seat off to his wife were scuttled uh, <laughs> as soon as that. Drug dog was like, I smell a USB drive in the wall. <laughs> uh, but we've had some developments come up uh, and kind of some big ones. So we yeah. got some names coming up from the midterm. Uh, they're going to be running for uh, seats here in L.A. Let's talk about
0: yeah, that. You're probably f- pretty familiar with them. So on Monday, Kevin DeLeon ended months of speculation surrounding his political uh, future political ambitions by announcing that he will be running for city council seat currently held by Jose Weiser. Uh, so the seat was originally going to by, uh, by, be contested by Huizar's wife, Rochelle, but she announced, as we mentioned earlier, her withdrawal from the race in late November, um, right before Thanksgiving when she thought that she could sneak away with nobody noticing, uh, which came a few weeks after the FBI raided her home and her husband's offices at dawn the day after the midterm elections. Uh, Kevin DeLeon previously served in the California State Assembly from 2006 until 2010 and in the state Senate from 2010 until 2018 where he stepped down from his position as the role as the Senate president pro tempore To challenge longtime US Senator Dianne Feinstein for her seat Uh, Again, she's been in that seat for what 32 years now or something at that point.
1: You know what? When we were at her office earlier this week, I should ask her staffer. I've
0: I, I don't know, but yeah, it's 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 been so uh, anyway. So he challenged Diane Feinstein. He didn't win. Following that lo- his loss in that race, speculation surrounding his future plans had often landed on the CD-14 council seat because everybody likes to just you know wildly speculate as to who's going to run for what. Uh, people were wondering whether Miguel Santiago or Wendy Carrillo might run for that seat, but. Uh, knowing that Kevin DeLeon is running means that they are definitely not going to be challenging for yeah. it. Uh, side note, City Council President Herb Wesson and Councilman Curran Price have both already endorsed De DeLeon for that uh, soon-to-be-vacant council seat.
1: See, as much as I want to like De DeLeon, now when I'm like <laughs> one allegedly corrupt city council member— and one not allegedly <laughs> corrupt city council president who <laughs> has allegedly corrupt staff members, yeah, there we go. That's former the, staff that's members. Yeah, joke. exactly. Yeah. So that you know, current price is the allegedly Chief of staff. corrupt. Yeah, uh, current price is the allegedly corrupt council member. Herb Wesson is the not allegedly corrupt council president, but who has allegedly corrupt former staffers uh, endorsing him. I I feel like it's a power move for him. For me, I kind of look at that and I'm like. What do y'all know? Because, like, you're so friendly with developers. De Leon's got to be bringing something heavy to the table. Like, they have to be seeing something they'll gain from that. Uh, they also, like, to endorse this early, like, A, nobody's filed a, a single freaking piece of paperwork yet. Like, nobody's officially running for those seats yet, I don't think. Uh, but it, that says a lot about who they think is going to win. Uh, and I don't know. I'm kind of hoping CD14 gets shaken up. I hope it's not a cakewalk it, for De
0: Leon. It I mean, looking at his uh, political tenure and his ability to fundraise and his ability to you know, wield the mechanisms of power and the state party apparatus, uh, it, it's it's going to be a long shot for somebody to challenge. But uh, 2020 is going to be a very interesting race. We've got to remember that that primary is in 13 months. Uh, so if he manages to pull more than 50% of the vote, because he does have probably more name recognition than I, anybody I can think of in CD14 after that uh, challenge against Diane Feinstein, if he manages to pull more than 50% of the vote, then he will win outright for that city council seat. Uh, mm-hmm. But everything else is going to be a complete, like an interesting new phenomenon here in California as we embrace our new Super Tuesday primary uh, in even election years that coincide with presidential elections, because we're going to be we've moved this election so far back in the schedule from what it used to be a June primary uh, back to March, which means that now all of the candidates have to do campaigning for another three months in a general election, which is going to be exhausting and expensive. Um, but it's also means that they're everybody's going to be competing with presidential primary candidates who. historically have basically written California off as uh, a done deal one way or the other by the time June rolls around. And they don't bother campaigning out
1: here. We're a cash register for most Democratic candidates, even for Republican candidates. Um, Outside of the the name brand GOP that we have here, like McCarthy, who kept his seat, one of the few GOP Congress members who actually held on to his seat in the state for most national politicians you show up in california to get some checks to hobnob with some stars to maybe shoot some like high end commercials but we're not a state where you pay attention to the politics
0: no you're not they're not campaigning here to get the vote they're here to get the money yeah. and so this time around uh, I, I forget if it was the Secretary of State or who, but we ended up pushing this, uh, the election date back now to be in March of 2020, so that our votes happen early enough in the presidential primary cycle that uh, people, it's, there's there's not going to be nearly as many pledged delegates at this at that point, which means that they're the primary candidates are for the Democratic Party. We're going to have, you know, 25 people running. They're going to be all out here trying to get as many people to vote for them as possible, which means that there's going to be a huge amount of spending on ad buys, on, on mailers that are going to be going out. People are going to be canvassing left, right, and sideways. You, you thought it was annoying in the 2018 midterm elections? Uh, just hold on <laughs> from that, uh, that Jurassic Park line from Samuel Jackson. Hold on to your butts. It's going to be wild. Well, actually, in some breaking news, the L.A.
1: Times has already declared that Kevin DeLeon won the primary and also apparently Hillary beat Bernie <laughs> again. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, yeah, it's go- definitely no, going to Chelsea be— Chelsea this
0: time. Chelsea. It's-
1: oh, God. After she got beaten up by Jack Allison on Twitter, she has no political career. That was— <laughs> That was so bad. Oh, my <laughs> oh gosh. Shout my out to God. struggle session hosts for, like, owning the Twitter game.
0: Oh, yeah, good but, stuff.
1: But here's the here is one thing to anticipate yeah. uh, for those of us here in L.A. These seats are going to cost more than a million dollars for Easy, any man. of these candidates to win. They only make, like, a quarter million a year. Like, just imagine how freaking broken a system is where you're paying four times as much to win, like, your job. Even like, worse. you're paying four times your salary to win a It's just so broken and so ridiculous because they're not fighting for the salary, they're fighting for all the kickbacks from Chinese developers afterwards. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. That's so, just say allegedly after everything you know, it, I
0: say. It, it's five times as much because they make 190 grand.
1: Oh, it's not, oh wow. I don't know, I, mm, I, I
0: counsel, thought it was more than that. Okay, no, it's, you're, it's you're one, probably right. 190 for city council. I don't know yeah. about city council president. I don't think you get Less more than, money. Okay, yeah. fair enough. But
1: again, we're not counting the kickbacks from no, Chinese no, uh, developers. Uh,
0: uh, alleged, alleged, alleged. Please don't sue us. Um, but the uh, the other thing that's worth noting is that. Um, <laughs> Miguel Santiago collected $1.2 million for his 2018 campaign. He makes $90,000 a year. God,
1: that's broken. Thir- thir-
0: 13 We're looking at 13 times the expenditure. Also, also he has $350,000 in his 2020 election cycle already, um, which means that he's got three and a half times his annual salary, uh, almost four times his annual yeah. salary already stockpiled he hasn't spent any of it but it's already stockpiled you know with 13 months to go for this campaign that has barely even started.
1: Yeah, well, the the one candidate in uh, CD twelve that has any sizable uh, contributions to oh, report yeah. is Frank Ferry, former uh, city council candidate or er, sorry, former city council member, who wrote himself a check for two hundred two thousand dollars, which is kind of funny because like he's only making one hundred ninety that first year, but <laughs> well, you can
0: already see. Isn't he the one who's currently serving like in a temporary f- facility as the CD? I,
1: I believe so. I also think his campaign's going to go nowhere oh, because boy. like I don't think anybody wants to see him serve again. Um, I don't know why he's running or why he immediately wrote himself a $200,000 check. But the the amount of money that you need just to run for a seat, let alone hold that seat, let alone pay for your staff to run that campaign is just absolutely insane. So before we close this one out, I don't think that Kevin DeLeon is the worst possible person to represent CD14. He's at least from the neighborhood. Uh, but at the same time, The number, the amount of money we're talking about being spent on each of these seats on these elections is mind-numbingly huge and absolutely a barrier to entry for some of the people that we actually need running this city. Like, we don't need people who are worth millions of dollars sitting on city council. We need people who are broke and with multiple evictions. Like, we need people like AOC who understand the lives most of us lead. We're not going to get that in this election. Hopefully, we can start moving that way afterwards, but- Kevin de Leon is going to kind of be the prestige one in CD 14, uh, there is so much time before this election, our forever campaigns yeah. have gotta end. So I'm, I'm gonna cut this one off now because we, we could go on <laughs> for hours about this
0: one. Public financing of campaigns, sorry. Yeah, no, to it's,
1: it's gonna be crazy. Uh, to give you all a real quick heads up, uh, Mary Beth Brophy, who works with the Modern Languages Association, is gonna be on the podcast interview this week. We're gonna be talking about contingent part-time faculty and what it's like to organize labor at a university level. We got a bunch of really cool stuff coming up. Uh, There's gonna be some really fun events. Uh, Mark your calendars, March fourteenth, twenty nineteen. Ground Game is having our first fundraiser. Tickets will be going on sale very, very soon. It is going to be a ton of fun, uh, and we hope that you all come and join us. And uh, we we do need the money because we need to pay for the stuff. You know, Chris's Chris's finely coiffed hair does not come <laughs> cheaply. Those beard trims. I get trips, nothing from this. Come on. Shh. <laughs> but nonetheless. <laughs> You know, as we build this capacity and we build this power, you guys help invest in us. You guys help us keep us going. We're really, really excited to keep doing this, and we're going to keep you up to date. Uh, other than that, I'm dropping off the grid for the weekend. I would suggest y'all do the same very soon. Get away from civilization. Uh, go smell some clean air. Go look at some stars. Go, you know, just get away from the city for a bit. Good so morning, I will catch y'all next week. Exactly. You know, go hug a tree. <laughs> go fist fight with a bear. Just all no, of that. No, don't fun fist stuff. fight a
0: bear. Don't fist fight a bear or. Mount- mountain lions. Both Don't. of them.
1: <laughs> Leave them alone. But that, that's all for me we, for this we week. We hit them
0: with cars on our freeways. Stop it.
1: I mean, in a, it's a friendly match, you know, it's like <laughs> a, a UFC like friendly match, you know, you and the bear just, you're going just into, the, into the, imagining Leonardo Oc-
0: DiCaprio <laughs> being just mauled by that bear. Yeah. No, that's not friendly. Yeah. We are totally off the rails here, folks. We,
1: we are, but I, I'm going to wrap it up for this week. Chris, any last thoughts before I uh, hit the stop recording button?
0: No, uh, I like the idea of communing with nature and so highly suggest that everybody goes out and does that as soon as possible.